بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد وجيب بردز وسستر السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so inshallah for the next three weeks we'll be covering the chapter of fasting the goal for today inshallah is just to have a small introduction and then starting from next week and the week after that that's when we'll actually cover the fiqh so what i thought we'd do for today is actually cover the verses that talk about fasting in the quran so for those of you that have a mushaf or have you know an app on your quran we'll be doing verses 183 till 187 inshallah 183 to 187 so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse 183 of Surah Al-Baqarah, He says, أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا كتب عليكم الصيام كما كتب على الذين من قبلكم لعلكم تتقون So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He starts off the verse by calling out the people of Iman. Now, in the Quran itself, you'll find roughly about 70 odd verses that begin with يا أيها الذين آمنوا Aisha radiallahu anha and Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma they both said that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts off a verse by Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, pay very close attention to it. Because either Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is about to command you with something that is beneficial for you, or He's about to prohibit something that is harmful for you, or He's about to prohibit something that is harmful for you. So here in this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He now begins the obligation of fasting. He says, Kutiba alaykum. So now when you study Usul al-Fiqh, you'll notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala obligates things in various ways. One of the ways that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala obligates a matter is by giving a commandment. One of the ways that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala obligates a matter is by obligating a command, by giving a commandment. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He could have simply just said sum, meaning fast. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not do that over here. And here's a, a general introduction to that. When it comes to matters of ibadat and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala giving a command, then the general rule is that that command becomes an obligation. However, if that command is outside of ibadat, and this applies to Prophet as well, if that command is outside of ibadat, then the general ruling is that it is something which is mustahab to do. It is something which is mustahab to do. This is something that's differed over over the scholars, but it's something that is good to know. A second way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala obligates a matter is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not give a commandment, but rather He sets up a punishment for the one that doesn't do it. He sets up a punishment for the one that doesn't do it. So this would fall under the category of impermissibility. So when something is impermissible, the opposite of it becomes mandatory. The opposite of it becomes mandatory. A third way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala obligates a matter is by using this form of kutiba alaykum or kataba alaykum. That when something has been prescribed for you or written for you, it is understood from this that it has been obligated and is mandatory to do. Now I want you to think about it. Kataba comes from that which is written. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala use kataba or kutiba alaykum, which is the, uh, a form where the, um, ob where the subject is not known, where the subject is not known, right? So it has been prescribed for you. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala use it has been prescribed or written for you to show uh, obligation? Why didn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just say, say it has been said to you? Why has it been written or prescribed for you? Go ahead. Does it have to do with Adopan where everything is written and said already? Like the Apostle of Hadith, the ink, the pen has written and ink has right? 
Okay, that's a good guess. You're, you're on the right track. Does it have something to do with Lawah al-Mahfuz? Indirectly, yes it does, but you're on the right track. Go ahead. Okay, I mean that's what the verse is, is implying over here That it has been prescribed in the previous books as well But we're looking for something different How is speech different from writing? Don't tell me yes, you use your hand to write it That's not what I'm looking for Right, so if you look in the hadith of, of, of Abdullah ibn Abbas uh, If I'm not mistaken, it was hadith 19 in Imam Nawi's 40 hadith He says, that the pens have been lifted and the pages have dried. So when something has been written, meaning that it is set in stone, that it, it's written now, it's not going to change, right? Whereas speech, you know, it's like someone can hear it, someone cannot hear it, someone can, you know, have mistakes in the, in, in the way it's, they're narrating it. But when something is written, there's no margin for error over here, right? It's set in stone. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses that form uh, to obligate matters, uses that form to obligate matters. Now, as-siyam. As-siyam over here comes from al-imsak. And al-imsak means to refrain from something. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about uh, fasting, it is a, uh, the act of refraining from three things. What are we refraining from when we're fasting? Food, water, sexual intercourse. Fantastic. So you're refraining from food, water, and sexual intercourse. Now, are we refraining from anything else as well? Sins, fantastic. And that's something that is implied. That is something that is implied. So while the general uh, scholars, when they talk about uh, things that one must refrain from, from fasting, they're talking about those things that will nullify a fast if they were to do them. And that is, you know, food, water, and sexual activity. If these things are refrained from sins, they do have an effect on the fast, but not to a degree that they will nullify the fast. Not to a degree that they will nullify the fast. Except for one sin which the scholars differed over, that if you were to do it, it could possibly nullify your fast. What was that sin? Why? Fantastic. Yes. Backbiting was one of the sins that the scholars talked about that if a person does not refrain from, it could possibly nullify his fast. The reason behind that, the verse in Surah Al-Hujarat where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَيُحِبُّ أَحَدُكُمْ أَنْ يَأْكُلَ لَحْمَ أَخِيهِ مَيْتَ فَكَرِحْتُمُهُ That when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes backbiting in Surah Al-Hujarat, He says, would any of you like to eat the dead flesh of his brother? So they said the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala likened this to the eating of dead flesh, this is an indication that this could potentially nullify the fast. In fact, you will actually find certain ahadith that are weak, but they indicate to this fact. There's the hadith of the, of the two women that they were fasting, and the Prophet said that you, you, your fast is not accepted. They said, why, O Messenger of Allah, we haven't eaten, we haven't drunk, nor, we have, nor have we partaken in, in any activity. And the Prophet said, go and throw up, and you will see. And then the women threw up, and they found you know, dead flesh coming out of them. This hadith is weak, it is not authentic, but uh, some of the scholars use this as a secondary proof to indicate this point, that when an individual backbites in the month of Ramadan, then this will nullify his fast. Kutiba alaykum as-siyam. So what is the fast that has been obligated over here? Scholars differed as to what is the fasting that has been obligated over here. The majority of scholars said that it is the day of Ashura that was first obligated upon the Muslims. And this was the first fast uh, that became obligatory. 
Now, the clearest indication of this is the fact like it was prescribed for those before you. So as we know, the month of Ramadan was not prescribed for the nations before us. And the only fast that was prescribed for them was the fast of Al-Ashura. And this is why they understood that the, the fasting which became mandatory upon them was the fast of Ashura. Now, this indicates also the chronology of uh, prescribing of fasting. That we had the first fast which came down, which was literally, you know, one day a year, subhanAllah. How easy is that? You can imagine that if you missed that one day out of the whole year, how terrible you would feel. Like Allah gave you one obligation and you couldn't fulfill it, right? Now, was that sufficient for the Muslims? Even then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them a way out of it that those who eventually wanted to fast were allowed to fast and those that didn't want to fast, all they had to do was feed a poor person all they had to do was feed a poor person and that was sufficient for them. And this is from the, the leniency and generosity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He understood the state of this ummah. That as an ummah, you know, we have individuals that will be very, very weak. That even fasting in you know, a one day is extremely difficult. And this is like a, a reminder for ourselves and a reflection for ourselves. Month of Ramadan comes, Alhamdulillah, we're amazing with fasting. But how do we do with fasting outside of the month of Ramadan? You know, how difficult is it to fast outside of the month of Ramadan? Like when winter time comes, we have no excuse not to fast. Because you skip breakfast and literally you're fasting the whole day. Like Fajr is at 8, Maghrib is at 4. You know, if you just skip breakfast and obviously lunch as well, you know, that's like within 10 hours you, your, your day is over. There's no reason not to fast. But a lot of the times we don't think about fasting. Our environments aren't conducive to fasting. Shaitan gets the best of us. We just forget, right? It's just natural. But the, the, the habit of fasting is a very good one that we'll come to discuss and talk about in a little bit. So fasting was one of those acts that was prescribed to the people before us. Now, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the people before us and how certain things have been prescribed in our sharia that were prescribed in their sharia. Why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling us this relationship? What is the wisdom behind Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala establishing this relationship for us? It tells us that we're not the only ones with the people behind you before you have done so you can do it as well. Almost a motivation. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. But that's not what we're looking for though. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala establish the relationship between our sharia and the sharia of the people before us? It's actually the same sharia. Is it the same Sharia? Yeah. <laughs> to, a, to a certain degree. Well, I mean, the religion generally is the same. That it was, it's called Islam because submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala establishes this relationship, and you'll notice this you know, quite a few times, is the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to draw common grounds between us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to draw common grounds between us. For those of you that remembered when we were doing uh, the tafsir of Surah Al-A'la, the reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned Suhufi Ibrahim wa Musa at the end of the surah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala established this because this would encompass all of the people that the, the, the Muslims would encounter. So this was to establish common grounds between them. The Quraysh respected uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam. The Jews of Medina respected Musa alayhi salam. So this was to build and establish common grounds between them. Similarly over here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is establishing that common ground between us and the previous faiths to indicate that, look, there is this common ground between you. And, you know, it would, it would be like a gradual process of conversion for those that converted. That look, the sharia at the end of the day is not very different from the sharia that was revealed in your faith as well. 
in hopes that you may attain taqwa from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This concept of taqwa is a, a very long one. And you know, a lot of times people will dedicate a khutbah to it, will dedicate a, a full halaqa to it. But to summarize the, the concept of taqwa, I want you to think about, for those of you that are working, what happens to you when you're working at work and your boss walks by, right? Your body, your body naturally stiffens up. You know, if you're not working, you pretend to start working. If you're on the phone, like fooling around, you'll, you know, you'll get off the phone and, and, and you know, act properly. I give this example because that is what taqwa is sort of meant to be like. That when a person becomes conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then that person gives up the foul deed that they're doing or the, you know, the obligation that they're not fulfilling and they actually rectify their affairs. And that's what they're meant to be doing. And that is what taqwa actually does. When a person becomes conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, their deeds will naturally be go up. So this is to become conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what taqwa in its essence truly is. Now, the predecessors, they've done, you know, discussed taqwa from various angles and various ways. Some people said that taqwa is to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so much that he is not forgotten. And to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that no ingratitude is shown to him. And it is to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is never disobeyed. Now that's a very difficult you know, definition to live up to. That never forgetting Allah, always obeying Allah, and always being thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But this shows us that taqwa is a process. It is not a goal within of itself. That you try to attain taqwa as much as, human, as is humanly possible. And when you slip, you try to strive for it again. Another example from the Salaf that they said, taqwa is as if you're walking on a path and there are thorns on this path. And with each step, you're very, very careful as to where you step so that you're not pr pricked by a thorn. So the example that they're giving over here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has defined for us what the straight path is. And then on the straight path, the, there, there are desires and, and pitfalls that will come our way. So uh, before you step, you just, you just can't blindly take a step. You have to be very, very careful of where you're stepping so that you're not pricked by that thorn. So that you're not pricked by that thorn. Now on a practical level, how does fasting tie into taqwa? How does fasting tie into taqwa? Let's start off with number one. The Prophet ﷺ advised that those individuals that are single, they should fast if they're not able to get married. He says, Ya ma'ashar al-shabab man That, O group of young people, those of you that are able to, should get married. And those of you that are not able to, should fast. Because it is a purifier of the, the eyes and of the heart, and it is protective of the private parts. It is protective of the private parts. So here, the Messenger of Allah gave this piece of advice because fasting naturally controls the desires of the body, naturally controls the desires of the body. That when the body is hungry, it is being starved, it will focus more on attaining food and drink than it will on fulfilling one's desire. And you'll notice that the exact opposite happens once the body has food and is nourished. Then once the, head, once the body is nourished, then it'll focus on fulfilling the other desires as well. It'll focus on fulfilling the other desires as well. So when the body is being you know, impoverished, 
then at that time it is easier to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because the test is easier to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through than through the state of gratitude, right? You have no food, you're starving, you're like, Ya Allah, let me get through this day, right? That's the natural reaction you will have. But once your stomach is full, it's like, khalas, let me go to sleep, let me go do something else. You know, we forget about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And similarly, you know, it's like in the month of Ramadan, you look at Muslims before they fast, you know, before iftar time and after iftar time. You know, before iftar time, everyone's making dua, everyone's reading Quran. And then as soon as the adhan goes up, food is being served, we become animals, subhanAllah. It's like jump on the food, they attack the food. Like if someone gets more you know, food on their plate than you, you start complaining. If someone gets a second plate of food, you start fighting them, you're like, you can't have this. You know, people just go absolutely crazy. And this shows us, you know, the effect of, of starving the human body. Number two is that it makes a person dependent upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Fasting makes a person dependent upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is because one starts to realize that this food is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. That if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was to not provide this food for you, you would not be able to eat. I want you to think about this for a second. We, are, we live in, a, in an age where we're very, very spoiled. Whatever food we want, we can literally go to the store you know, and buy it. Even fruits that are out of season, they found a way to make them grow so that you can get them out of season. You can buy mangoes all year long. You can buy like papayas all year long, right? But now how, what is it? Mango. <laughs> what did you say though? Mango. mango. You said mango? Okay, <laughs> I thought you said something else. Um, so you can get those things out of season. Now I want you to think about subhanAllah. Imagine Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was, was to withhold rain from the whole entire world. What would happen to the world at that time? No fruits would grow, no plants would grow, the animals even that we eat, they would not be able to eat, and eventually the world would die off, right? Yet it is from the generosity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that even though we disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still sends down His rain through which the cycle continues. So this is the dependency that we're talking about, that when you're not eating food, it allows you to reflect, where did this food come from? That, you know, let mankind look to where his food comes from and what his food actually is. It is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A third thing that fasting does for us, it shows, is it shows us the importance of gratitude. That how many people there are in the world that fasting is not a choice for them. Literally, they have no food, so they have to fast, right? But for us, when we fast, it is a choice, it is an option for us. And this is something to impart gratitude on our behalf. That here we should be thankful for the food that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided for us. Make the most of it. Try not to be gluttonous when we eat, so that we can show gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is, you know, part of the, the, the legacy of fasting that the reason why the Prophet ﷺ used to fast so frequently is part of that gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ described his general attitude towards ibadah, that why he did so much of it, أَفَلَا أَكُونَ عَبْدًا شُكُرًا Should I not be a thankful and grateful slave to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And this leads us into how many days per year did the Prophet ﷺ actually fast? And you'll notice that the Prophet ﷺ was fasting close to more than half of the year. Half or more of the year. How so? The Islamic month will have 360 days. The Prophet is fasting all of Ramadan. Okay, let's say 30 days over there. Then the Prophet is fasting uh, all of Muharram, if not most of Muharram. 
let's just say on average 20 days over there. Then the Prophet ﷺ is fasting most of Sha'ban as well, right? Another 20 to 30 days over there. Then the 10 days of Dhul Hijjah, right? Then the 6 days of Shawwal. And then the day of Ashura and the day after it or the day before it. And then the 13th, 14th and 15th of every month. And then Monday and Thursday of every week. Like you do the math over here and literally it's coming out to half of the year. And that was the attitude that the Prophet wasallam had towards fasting, had towards fasting. And this is why you see the Prophet was able to get so much done through his day because he didn't have to worry about food, right? Half of our distractions throughout the day are the food that we eat. Like, you know, okay, what should I have for breakfast? What should I have for lunch? Then preparing those meals. If you're not preparing it, then going out to buy it, right? And then after you go out and you eat, and then you have to let this food digest, and you have this period of like non-functioning. It's just like zone out, right? All of that is eliminated when a person is fasting. All of that is eliminated when a person is fasting. Now, the last objective of fasting over here, and this is what we'll conclude this ayah with, it is a training for the body to refrain from sin. It is a training for the, for the body to refrain from sin. As we mentioned, when the scholars talked about uh, you know, the things that an individual refrains from, from fasting, while sin is not mentioned as a, nullifi as a nullifier of fasting, it is definitely something that one has to stay away from. The Prophet ﷺ said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not in the need of you giving up your food and drink if you're going to be vile in your speech, if you're going to be foul in your speech. So there's a training that any sins that a person has, he uses fasting to eliminate them. He uses fasting to eliminate them. And I remember an amazing story of uh, an uncle in Montreal, that this uncle used to smoke like three packets of cigarettes a day. Three packets, it's absolutely crazy. Like now I'm just thinking about it from like a financial perspective. That's like, you know, like $25 a day that is spent on smoking let alone the health repercussions of this. And I remember one day, you know, we were talking about how, look, uncle, you're really sick. You need to give up smoking and it's not good for you. And you know, it's not good financially. And he's like, what should I do? And I was like, you know what? Ramadan is just around the corner. Use Ramadan as an opportunity to give up this habit, make lots of dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and see you know, what happens. The first day of Ramadan comes and he's like literally crying at iftar time. And I thought he was so happy that, you know, he's giving up smoking at that time. But literally, he's going through such severe withdrawals. It's like painful for him, subhanAllah. And that shows you, you know, the effect of the things that we're addicted to. People that are addicted to tea, you know, fasting is very difficult for them because they start getting headaches. People that are addicted to coffee, same thing. Various addictions that we have, but we don't want to admit them. We find them out through fasting. Now, getting back to the story of this uncle, by the end of the month of Ramadan, he had spent the whole month of Ramadan and he hadn't touched a single cigarette. And Alhamdulillah, you know, even till this day, I'm still in touch with him. And it's gone on to like five years now, or if not, I think five to seven years now, that he hasn't touched a cigarette. You know, Ramadan is the month that any changes we want to make in our life, it is an ideal opportunity to do that. It is an ideal opportunity to do that. Now, let us move on to the very next verse. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He goes on to say, أَيَّامًا مَعْدُودَاتٍ فَمَنْ كَانَ مِنْكُمْ مَرِيضًا أَوْ عَلَى سَفَرٍ فَعِدَّةٌ مِنْ أَيَّامٍ أُخَرٍ وَعَلَى الَّذِينَ يُطِيقُونَ فِدْيَةٌ طَعَامٌ مِسْكِينٌ فَمَنْ تَطَوَّعَ خَيْرٌ فَهُوَ خَيْرٌ لَهُ وَأَنْ تَسُومُ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, um, 
and it is for a fixed period of days, but if any of you is ill or on a journey, the same number should be made up from other days. And as for those who can fast with difficulty, then they have a choice of either to fast or to feed a poor person. But whoever does good of his own accord, it is better for him. And that you fast is better for you if you only knew. If you only knew. So now when it comes to verse 184, there's actually a large discussion amongst the scholars. Is this verse abrogated or is it still applied? Is this verse abrogated or is this verse still applied? Those scholars that said that this verse is abrogated, they said that this is referring to the initial obligation of fasting. People had a choice that if they wanted to fast, they could fast. And if they weren't going to fast, then they could feed a poor person. So they said that this is referring to the fast of Ashura. That was the first fast that was given. That if they didn't want to fast, all they had to do was feed a poor person. But if they were to fast, then this is better for them. Abdullah bin Abbas he held a completely different opinion. He said that this verse, it wasn't abrogated, but rather it was understood in a different light. That when the month of Ramadan came, then those people that had difficulty fasting, like the old man or like the one that is traveling or like the one that is sick, then they, can, they have the uh, option to uh, feed a poor person. But the one that doesn't, then they have to fast. And let me just change that around. There is only the old person, not the person that is sick or is fasting. The person that is old and can no longer fast or the person that has a terminal illness that prevents them from fasting, then they can feed a poor person uh, for the month of Ramadan and they don't have to fast. Whereas the one that is traveling or has a temporary sickness, then these people have to make up their fast. And these people have to make up their fasts. Now, in terms of the fidya that here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to, then this is the equivalent of the amount of food that you would eat in one meal. So whatever you would eat in one meal, this is the amount of food that you would donate to an individual. Now obviously as time is going on, the, the, the value of this is something that is going to increase because the price of food has naturally increased. So this is something to keep in mind that those of you that have parents that are unable to fast and you're giving money on their behalf, it's not like you just buy like, you know, a bag of macaroni and you can give that out. Unless that's what you're eating every single day, then that's a different story. But whatever you're eating, you know, a combination of salad and pasta and rice and chicken and meat and all of that stuff, then whatever the average meal is, that's what you want to donate. In the masjid, we usually approximate around $9 per meal. Around $9 per meal. That is what we uh, usually tell people that if you're giving fidya, then this is the approximate amount that you can give. And this is for North America. Obviously, you go back home and it's a lot cheaper. You know, $9 subhanAllah can like, feed a family sometimes, uh, depending on what country you are from. That if you were to fast, then it is actually better for you. And this is uh, you know, an, uh, a part of the ayah that scholars used that if an individual is sick or an individual is traveling and he has the option not to fast, what is more preferable for him? Is it preferable for him to take the concession from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or is it preferable for him to rough it through as long as it is not harmful for him? Now the general ruling that the scholars gave is that the concession is always preferable. That the concession is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you a gift, then you should take advantage of that gift that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you. Except for fasting. Scholars said that it is better to fast if the person is able to, based upon this verse. Now why would the scholars differentiate fasting from something like salah? Like an individual is traveling, he can combine and shorten his prayers and there's nothing wrong with that. No, the scholars did not say it's better for you to pray your prayers incomplete. Whereas when it came to fasting, the scholars actually said that if for you to fast is actually better for you. Who can tell me why? Go ahead. It's 
We haven't gotten to Ramadan yet. Ramadan is coming in next ayah. But even, even when, let's just say it is the month of Ramadan, okay? I mean, what, is there not barakah and praying two extra rakahs? So just that everybody's fasting at that time as well, right? So it makes it a lot easier on the individual. And at the same time with Ramadan, we know there's certain blessings that come with it. And if you're fasting outside Ramadan, you don't get those same blessings. Blessings is too vague of a term here. What blessings are you talking about? Like you have you have like so many, like the last 10 nights you have those. Like but how does that affect one's fasting though? I'm just saying the rahmah and the barakah that comes at that time. It's so, I mean, can one not attain that barakah and rahmah if they're not fasting? So it's like saying the woman that is menstruating. No, but that's exactly my point, that, that barakah is not restricted to the act of fasting. Right? It's, due to, it's, it's, it's restricted to that period of, of time. So for example, a person that can't pray during that time, like the, the woman that's menstruating, do we say she's deprived of the, of the barakah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? No, because in her situation it's mandatory. She's not allowed to pray. But for the one who has that choice, if it's a hard time, <laughs> how does that not make sense though? No, what, I, what I'm saying is, is I think you're mixing up two things over here. The concept of barakah is not restricted to the act. It's restricted to the period of time. So Laylatul Qadr, the month of Ramadan, these are periods of time. And those periods of time have barakah in them, right? Okay, so now let us bring, go back to the original subject. Why is an individual that is meant to fast, why is it better for him to fast and take the concession? <laughs> We're gonna skip on to the next person. Out of go ahead, man. Fantastic. Yes, but why though? That's what we're looking at. Go ahead. The reward is Allah uh, Taala. He Himself is giving. There is no any prescribed reward. We're going to get to the reward of fasting, but that you're on the on a close track. But that's not it. Why does Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala Subhanahu Wa Taala tell us that this concession, it's better for you if you don't take it? Go ahead. For example, if the, the guy told that like, he's smoking, like if you just pay someone, okay, I cannot fast because I'm smoking, but since he fasted, the change came, the change came into him. So I will accept that as half of an answer. So you're on the right track, I'll accept that as half of the answer. So remember, the goal of fasting is to attain taqwa. The goal of fasting is to attain taqwa. That's what, or the primary goal of fasting is to attain taqwa. When an individual fasts, then this, he's attaining that taqwa. When an individual chooses to give the fidya, he's not going to attain that taqwa. He's just fulfilled that obligation. He's just fulfilled that obligation. Element to it. The second element to it. Let's hear from this side of the room. Why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Munib? Yeah. We'll come back to Munib inshallah. <laughs> this part of the room. Why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? He was laughing at you. <laughs> Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala want us to fast? Like he tells us that if you were to fast, it is better for you. How is fasting different from like the other pillars of Islam? I wish we had like the Jeopardy music. <laughs> Go ahead. Nobody knows that you're doing it. Nobody knows that you're doing it. So it improves your sincerity? Yeah, if you're praying your salah, people can see you. Right. Fasting, nobody can tell whether you're actually fasting or not. We can actually tie that in with one of the benefits of fasting. That fasting will improve your sincerity with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because no one knows about it. To give you the answer over here is that 
when you look at the arkan al-Islam, none of them are communal obligations with the accepting of fasting and for Hajj. Hajj you have to do it once. As for Ramadan, that is the only communal obligation that everyone has to do it together at the same time. Someone may argue, how about Salah? Salah is not like that because we have an open window for Salah. Dhuhr will last from the, the time that your, your, your shadow is one till the time that your shadow is two, right? Uh, sunrise, to, from, the, from dawn till sunrise, this Fajr, right? So not everyone has to pray at the exact same time. They have that window of time to pray at the exact same time, right? So now with that having been said, as a community, this is part of showing our communal worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is the establishment of the sha'ir of Islam. That when the whole ummah, the whole community fasts together, then this is a representation of the faith, is a representation of everyone worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala altogether. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us that if you were to fast, it is better for you. One, it helps you attain the taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number two, it is a representation and a manifestation of the sha'ir of Islam where everyone is obligating together. Now just uh, to comment on that verse, uh, on this completely side tangent, I just came back from Hong Kong uh, yesterday. And while I was in Hong Kong, uh, the hotel we were staying at, the masjid was right behind it, behind us, subhanAllah. And on the very first night, you know, we were invited to a nikah. And when we were at the nikah, we looked at the, the salah timings. Salah tul fajr was like the strangest experience over there. The imam insisted that he, they would pray fajr, in the last 20 minutes of Fajr. So sun, Fajr would begin at 4.20 and sunrise was at 5.40. Every day, w that, as the Salah timings were changing, he would just take away 20 minutes and that's when they would establish Salat al-Fajr. And I was like, why are you doing this? And literally by the time you finish Salat al-Fajr, the sun is up. In fact, I even remember the third day when we were there, after Salat al-Fajr, the sun was up. You know, the, uh, the, 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 the sun was rising at that time. And I thought to myself, you know, someone needs to, to speak to the Imam, but I didn't have the guts to do so. <laughs> so I, I got one of the guys to, you know, go and ask him, you know, why are you doing this? And he says that from my experience, and this is like, oh, this was like a huge lesson for me. I was like, you know, this is makruh, he shouldn't do this. You know, it's leading into haram. He says, from my experience, when we keep fajr at its earliest time, no one wants to show for salah. But when we keep it at around this time, this is when the most people show up for Salah. So to make it easy for the people to show up, you know, that's why I kept the, the Salat al-Fajr uh, that late. And at that time, you know, it actually clicked. I, I didn't think that that was the actual reason. That to us as human beings, does it really make a difference if we're waking up at 4 or at 5? I mean, generally no, because we're not going to start work till 9. So you'll still get an average, a good amount of sleep after Fajr if you like. But this shows us real fiqh over here, that an individual, he wants to look at what is good for the community, right? So the more people that can come and pray Salat al-Fajr and pray the prayers, then that is what you want to do. Again, going back to this concept of, as a community representing the Sha'ar of al-Islam. That one should not look at, you know, hey, is it obligatory for me to pray in the masjid or not? That's not the point of view that we should have. The point of view that we should have is that, you know, where are the shahid of Islam being represented and what is more pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, let's take the last verse for today. Oh, you have a question, Arif? Uh, just about the, uh, so you mentioned something about fasting being, uh, it's better to fast than taking the concession because, because the taqwa you will only attain if you fast. Yes. So if you're... If you're, if you're a traveler and you take the concession, you will fast eventually. But remember, the, the, that obligation hasn't come yet. That's coming in the next oh. ayah, right? So right now you have the, obli the obligation to observe, right? Which is either through fasting or giving the fidya. 
right? That's what the initial stage was. Then the second stage is, now you actually have to fast. So that's why it wouldn't apply to, to that. Uh, excuse me, can I ask something? Uh, can you give me reference something? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he is the most powerful. Yes. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never tells a lie, right? Yes. Yes. So can you give me the reference of the ayat? For, for what exactly? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never tells a lie. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never tells a lie. I don't even know how to answer that. Yeah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always speak the truth. Okay. And we follow him. So if you look in uh, Surah Al-Imran, verse number 11, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُخْلِفُ الْمِيَعَادِ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not break His promise. That's uh, one thing that uh, comes to mind. Uh, Surah Imran, ayah? Number 11. Ayah number 11. Yeah. Now the question is, if a Muslim, if a Muslim tells lie, yes. if a Muslim tells lie continuously, yes. continuously, he tells I'm a Muslim, but he tells a lie now, in the evening he tells a lie, in the morning he tells a lie, uh, during Isha he tells a lie, but he, he claims that I'm a Muslim, but he tells a lie all the time. Yes. So according to Tariqa, what is the punishment for him during this art, and what is the punishment for him after the art? So what's the punishment for him in Right. Um, there's a hadith that the Prophet says that um, speaking the truth is righteousness and righteousness leads to paradise and a person will continue to speak the truth until he's risen from the people of paradise and the exact opposite the Prophet said in the hadith that uh, lying leads to vice and vice leads to the hellfire and a person will continue to tell a lie until he's written from the people of the hellfire so that's what the punishment of lying is that the, that the Prophet said that that person is going to the hellfire in terms of specific punishments of this dunya, I do not know of any specific punishments in this dunya. However, it is considered a major sin that needs to be abstained yeah, somebody, from. Uh, somebody is claiming I am Muslim, but he is always speaking the lie. So according to you, that is, he, uh, you don't know about the art, but after, after the art, or after the Qiyamah, he will go to hellfire, right? He is deserving of the hellfire, uh, yes. Is hadith or Quran? This is a hadith, and there's many, many ayat in the Quran that talk about this. Okay. Is that okay? So let's go on. Um, so in verse 185, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, شَهْرُ الرَّمَضَانَ الَّذِي أُنزِلَ فِيهِ الْقُرْآنَ هُدًا لِلنَّاسِ وَبَيِّنَاتٍ مِنَ الْحُدَى وَالْفُرْقَانِ فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمُ الشَّهْرَ فَلْيَسُمْحْ وَمَنْ كَانَ مَرِيضًا أَوْ عَلَى سَفَرٍ فَعِدَّةٌ مِنْ أَيَّامٍ أُخَرْ يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ بِكُمُ الْيُسْرَ وَلَا يُرِيدُ بِكُمُ الْعُسْرَ <coughs> in which was revealed the Qur'an, a guidance for mankind and clear proofs for the guidance and the criterion. <coughs> so whoever of you cites the crescent uh, of the month of Ramadan, he must observe fasting of that month and whoever is ill or on a journey, the same number of days which he did not fast must be made up from other days. Allah intends for you ease and He does not want to make things difficult for you and He wants you that you must complete the number of days and that you must magnify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for having guided you so that you may be grateful to Him. So that you may be grateful to Him. <coughs> so now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us an introduction to the month of Ramadan. Shahru Ramadan. Now the month of Ramadan <coughs> is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. And this month of Ramadan is the month that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to obligate fasting. But before the obligation of fasting came, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us an, an, another introduction. And that is, That the month of Ramadan is the month in which the Qur'an was sent down. 
Now, what does it mean that the Quran was sent down in this month? There's multiple understandings of this verse. Number one, that the first revelation came down in the month of Ramadan. Jazakallah khair, Sajjad. Barakallah You can keep one and I'll take one, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Bismillah. Jazakallah khair. Drink it, inshallah. Um, so the, the, the first revelation came down in the month of Ramadan. That is one understanding of it. A second understanding of it is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the Quran from the Luhul Mahfuz to the first heavens in the month of Ramadan. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the Quran from the Luhul Mahfuz to the first heavens in the month of Ramadan. And then Jibreel, that is how he used to uh, narrate the Quran to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa from the first heavens. He used to relate to the Quran from the first heavens. So the Quran was revealed in its entirety in this month, in this month. There are other narrations that Ibn Kathir rahimahullah mentions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose in fact all of the revelations to be revealed in the month of Ramadan. And he used some of the Israeliyat to indicate this point. That the Torah to Musa, the Injil to Isa alayhi salam, all of these were revealed in the month of Ramadan and not just the Quran. Now why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala start off Ramadan with an introduction to the Quran rather than fasting? Because the Quran is so significant, so important in the life of the Muslim that even the commandment of fasting came in the Quran itself. So the first obligation for the Muslim is to reattach himself to the Quran in the month of Ramadan. Now, our understanding of being reattached to the Quran in the month of Ramadan is completely different from the reattachment to the Quran that the Salaf had. When you look at the lives of the Salaf, you'll find that it was extraordinary how they used to attach themselves to the month of Quran. Multiple, multiple of the Salaf, from them Imam al-Bukhari, from them Imam al-Shafi, from them Imam Muslim, from them, you know, Sakam Rahawai, all of these great Imams of the past, when they reattached themselves to the month, uh, to the Quran, that was completing close to one Quran every day, and then, you know, one Quran every three nights in, in Qiyamul Layl. That is how they understood reattaching to the Quran. So you can imagine, you know, some of them finishing the Quran up to 20 times in the month of Ramadan. 20 times in the month of Ramadan. Almost an impossible feat in our times. Almost an impossible feat in our times. But that is what, you know, reattaching to the Quran actually is. And this is what is important to understand that regardless of where your relationship is with the Quran, one should make his priority in the month of Ramadan to reattach with the Quran. You may have abandoned the Quran for the whole entire year, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving an opportunity to reattach to the Qur'an. Now here's the scary reality of being distant from the Qur'an. The Qur'an, and this is going to sound really strange, but understand where I'm coming from, is almost like a human being from one perspective. That human being is that imagine you constantly see someone and you constantly, every time you see them, you're like, can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have that? Always asking for favors. Till the time comes, you're like, you know what? Just leave me alone. I want nothing to do with you, right? This is how we sort of treat the Quran. That we will refer to the Quran when we need something. So for example, you know what? I have an exam tomorrow. Let me read some Quran. Or I need to do a good deed. Let me read some Quran. And then when we don't need anything, we abandon the Quran altogether. Right? So now imagine if you were this individual that constantly you had this friend that only called you and asked you for favors, you wouldn't respond to them, would you? A time would eventually come, you wouldn't respond. 
And this is what the Quran does from a spiritual aspect. That why is it that for some people it is next to impossible to complete the Quran in the month of Ramadan? It's because the Quran does not want to be abused and will not allow you to abuse it. So if you're only reading the Quran in the month of Ramadan, it's going to be next to impossible for you to finish it. Whereas the individual that has a regular habitual reading of the Quran, even though it may just be a little bit, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant that person tawfiq and they will be able to finish the Quran in the month of Ramadan. So this is like a good reminder that, hey, if we've been you know, being very lazy with our Quran, now is a very good time to start that up again. Start reading as much Quran as you can before the month of Ramadan. And this will actually train you to finish the Quran in the month of Ramadan. How many pages would you have to read per salah to finish the Quran in the month of Ramadan? Not in the salah, but if you were to break it down according to salah timings. Go ahead. Four to five pages. Four to five pages. If you read four to five pages, um, except if there's like 29 days and maybe a bit more. So if you say five to six pages, you know, every salah before or after, then you can actually finish the Quran in the whole entire month. And my personal strategy is that try to knock it out at the beginning part of the morning. So you're going to wake up for suhoor, you're going to stay awake a little bit after fajr is over, then read as much of the Quran as you can at that time. So that you give yourself leeway for the rest of the day. That you read 10 pages at fajr time, so that you only have to read about like 15 pages the rest of the day. And if you can read 15 pages at fajr time, then you only have to read 10 pages for the rest of the day. So you give yourself flexibility and leeway. So knock out as much as you can at the beginning of the day. Now, how about if you knock it out completely at the beginning of the day and you chill the rest of the day? That's not the, the, the attitude you sort of want to have. If you knocked out 25 pages at the beginning of the day, try to knock out another 25 pages throughout the day. The, the point is, you want to establish that habit of reading the Quran regularly, right? So if you're able to read a Jews in the morning, fantastic. If you can do more than that, fantastic. But the thing is, make it a goal to finish the Quran at least once in the month of Ramadan. And do as much as you can on top of that. The point of the Quran. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala want us to have this relationship with the Quran? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us, Hudan uh, wa wal furqan. That it is a guidance for mankind and a clarification of this guidance and it is a criterion. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given three descriptions over here. That number one, it is a guidance for mankind. So mankind is constantly in need of guidance. That's why we're constantly asking Allah, Ihdina sirat al mustaqim. You are asking Allah for guidance. Now follow up that dua with actual action by reading the Quran. If you were to just make you know, a blanket dua, oh Allah grant me guidance, but you're not willing to read the Quran, this shows a level of insincerity when making that you know, uh, dua in salah. And this shows that a lot of the times the people will say, hey, I'm praying, but you know, why is the salah not having an effect on me? Because are you truly fulfilling what your salah is necessitating? Making dua that, oh Allah, guide me to the straight path necessitates that you will read the Qur'an. Because this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the Qur'an as a form of guidance. You want guidance from Allah, establish a relationship with the Qur'an. And it is a clarification of that guidance. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not only will He guide and grant you guidance through the Qur'an, but here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will manifest and explain what that guidance actually is and what it should actually look like. Generally speaking, increase in iman, increase in righteous deeds. That is a simplified clarification of guidance. Wal-Furqan. 
Al-Furqan is the criterion between right and wrong, between good and evil, and truth and falsehood, right? And that is what Al-Furqan is. Now when you live in troubling times, and you're unable to tell between what is right and wrong, the Qur'an is there to clarify what is right and wrong and what is good and bad. So that, distinguish, that distinguishing characteristic lies with the Qur'an, that it will help an individual decipher good from bad. Now particularly in our times where the lines have become so blurred, this is one of the objectives of the Qur'an, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants people basira through the Qur'an, and they are able to distinguish between right and wrong. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to say, فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمُ الشَّهْرَ فَلْيَسُمْهُ that whoever amongst you sees the crescent, then they should fast. So remember we were talking about the ways that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala obligates things. Either Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives a command, or either Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows a punishment for not doing it, or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He uses the, for, the form of kataba or kutiba. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now actually giving the command, فَلْيَسُمْحْ, right? So this command as we mentioned, when it comes in matters of ibadat, then the, the default ruling is that it is an obligation. So now, can one argue, فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمْ الشَّهْرَ فَلْيَسُمْهُ That whoever amongst you sees the crescent, then they should fast. Can you make the argument that fasting only becomes obligatory on the one that sees the crescent? Fasting only becomes obligatory on the one that sees the crescent. We know the answer to that obviously, I hope, is, is no. But I'm saying using the context of this verse, how, what is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala trying to imply over here? فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمُ الشَّهْرَ فَلْيَسُمْ That whoever amongst you sees the crescent, then fast. It's like a communal obligation to have Okay, so the first ruling we're establishing over here is that the sighting of the moon is an actual act of ibadah. So to go out and to try to sight the moon is an actual act of ibadah. From what perspective? One, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says that whoever amongst you sees the moon, then let him fast. So it is an indirect way of encouragement. But a clear uh, uh, understanding of this is that مَا لَا يَتِمُّ الْوَاجِبُ إِلَّا بِهِ فَهُوَ وَاجِبُ That whatever is needed to fulfill an obligation becomes an obligation within of itself. So if you need the sighting of the moon to fulfill the obligation of fasting, then the sighting of the moon becomes an obligation as well. And that ruling is that it is a fard kifaya. That if one part of the ummah is doing it, one part of the community is doing it, then the other part of the community does not need to do it. What are some of the things we can extrapolate from this? That when one hears something, it is just as much of a proof as one, one sees. Right? So we are all in agreement that we do not need to physically see the crescent in order for all of us to fast. So where does the obligation of fasting come from? That if someone did see it and he told it to us and they are a trustworthy person, then hearing it from them is sufficient just as much as seeing it. Just as much as seeing it. So this shows us you know, the levels of knowledge and how we uh, extrapolate it. It's not just through seeing something, that if one can hear something and it is carried by trustworthy individuals, then this becomes a form of knowledge as well, that is just as strong as having seen it with your own eye. A second lesson that is derived from this, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He did not say to do taqdeer of ayyam, He did not say to, do, to approximate the days of fasting. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly says, فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمْ That whoever amongst you sees the crescent, right? So that meaning that Ramadan and the, the, the months in, in general, they should not be calculated. That yes, you can use calculations as a form of approximation, 
but you can't say that Ramadan is going to start on this day and end on this day, you know, five years in advance, like some calendars are doing this day. They have told us when Eid is going to be celebrated, you know, five years from now. And it's like set in stone that even if the sighting is different, you know what, this is what we're going to do. Now I can sort of understand that the argument where they're coming from is that, hey, you know, we live in a time where people need to take days off for Eid and you know, if they can tell their boss in advance, this is the day that I need to take off, it becomes a lot easier. For those of you that work, you know, you know how difficult that conversation is every year when you're like, yeah, boss, I need the day off. And you're, he's like, okay, which day do you need off? And you're like, I don't know yet. It could be this day, it could be that day. I understand where you're coming from. But that difficulty does not mean that we change the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly said that whoever amongst you sees the moon, then let him fast. Then let him fast. And now this is when the obligation of fasting in the month of Ramadan actually takes place. So now this has abrogated the fasting of Ashura. This has abrogated the fasting of Ashura. So Ashura was obligatory. Now once Ramadan is um, established, Ashura becomes abrogated. The fasting of it only in terms of it is now recommended as opposed to uh, an obligation. And that obligation has also become abrogated that before you had a choice to either feed a poor person or to fast. That now with Ramadan, it is obligatory to fast. It is obligatory to fast. That whoever is, travel, is sick or is traveling, then they have to make up these days after. They have to make up these days after. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to say something very, very interesting. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants ease for you and does not want difficulty for you. Thinking of the month of Ramadan where you're giving up your food, you're giving up your sleep, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling you that He wants ease for you and not difficulty. But doesn't Ramadan seem difficult? How would we understand this part of the verse in light of Ramadan? Can I ask a different question? After you answer my question, you can ask a question. Yeah. Go ahead. Is it like a training ground? Because Ramadan is so hard, right? But the rest of the year becomes easier because of it? Okay, and that's an interesting way to look at it. I didn't think about it like that. So if you fast in the month of Ramadan, then the rest of the year becomes easy. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Go ahead. Is it referring to making your akhirah easy? Okay, very good. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to making your akhirah easy as opposed to this dunya. What else? So the, the goal behind it, which is taqwa, it's to achieve it through other means are possible, but uh, probably fasting is, a, is much more conducive to achieving that. Mm. It's quicker to food, it's like quicker, you know what I'm saying? Okay, good. <coughs> it's a better way maybe compared to others. Okay. Anything else? When Allah wants ease for us, but on the apparent it seems difficult, how is it ease? This side of the room is always quiet. Go ahead. Allah forgives sins during the month of Ramadan. Allah forgives sins during the month of Ramadan. Okay. So that makes things easy. It brings righteousness. Okay. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about bringing ease, what this is referring to over here is the example of someone that is like weight training. Okay. When you're weight training in the gym, the first time you're doing like a bench press of like 100 pounds, you're like, man, this is so difficult, I can't do it. 
then as you do it over time and your muscles start to develop, that 100 pounds no longer becomes difficult. In fact, you can do 150 pounds, 200 pounds. But that initial you know, reaction is one of difficulty. And over time, it becomes easy. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants ease for us, meaning that the stronger you get spiritually and physically, then the rest of your tasks will become easy for you as well. So this is one element of ease. And this is how I understood what Sajjad was trying to say. A second element of ease is that our understanding of ease is completely different from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to. So our understanding of ease is comfort in this dunya. Comfort in this dunya is not necessarily ease, right? Being able to adapt to your situation, that is what ease is. And when an individual refrains his nafs and strengthens his nafs, then that is when things become easy. But when you're constantly giving in to your nafs, then to control your nafs even for a short amount of time becomes very, very difficult. Then to control your nafs for a short amount of time becomes very, very difficult. So we need to understand ease in light of the Sharia. Number three, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is explaining to us what ease is. Ease is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us what ease is and not how we understand it, right? So a lot of the times when we're having general discourse on, you know, the Sharia came as a form of ease, ease from the understanding that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to understand, not our perception of it, right? So that is the third thing that we should understand from this. Now, as a general concept relating to the fast, to, to fasting, we tie this back to the barakah of the month of Ramadan. We tie this back to the barakah of the month of Ramadan. And that is, fasting inside of the month of Ramadan is a lot easier than fasting outside of the month of Ramadan. And this is the ease that is specific that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about. That mentally you think, you know what, how am I going to fast a whole month? You try to explain to non-Muslims that we fast for a whole month, and they're like, aren't you going to die? And we're like, trust me, we've been doing this for 1400 years, alhamdulillah, no one has died yet. So how is it possible that, you know, even the person that is just on the, 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 the bare brinks of Islam, they find a way to fast in the month of Ramadan. It's because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes righteousness easy in the month of Ramadan. And this is the ease that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides for us. And this is shown in trying to fast outside of Ramadan. That even if you are a righteous person, fasting outside of Ramadan is a lot more difficult than fasting together in the month of Ramadan. Another understanding of this is the relationship with shaitan. That in the month of Ramadan, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ties up the shayateen so they do not whisper to, to us as much. Whereas outside of the month of Ramadan, the shayateen are loose. Fighting your soul becomes a lot more difficult. Fighting your soul becomes a lot more difficult. So that you may complete the obligated period of time, meaning that you have to fast the period of days if Ramadan is. If Ramadan was 29 days, 29 days needs to be fasted. If Ramadan is 30 days, 30 days need to be fasted. Regardless if you're sick or traveling, that needs to be done. And that you may magnify and glorify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to that which He guided you to. And this ties us back to how the slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala need to be humble and need to recognize the greatest gift of guidance. That when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you guidance, it's not something that you earn. It is a favor from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that you praise and glorify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now scholars interpreted this in a specific sense and a general sense. The specific sense they said that on the day of Eid you make the takbirat وَلِتُكَبِّرَ اللَّهَ عَلَى مَا هَدَاكُمْ So that you make these takbirat 
Did you make these takbirat on the day of Eid to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the guidance that He had given you to fast in the month of Ramadan? That is a specific sense. In a general sense, they say that the takbir over here does not mean the act of saying Allahu Akbar, but it means generally to praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the act of guidance, for giving you guidance. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed you with Islam, then thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that blessing. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed you with the Sunnah, then thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that blessing. In hopes that you may become grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In hopes that you may be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As we started our discussion, one of the primary objectives of fasting was to become more grateful slaves to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Grateful not only for the food that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides for us, but grateful for the health that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides us. And over here, grateful for something even greater, guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That if you're able to fulfill your purpose of creation in worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then this is something to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for. The original plan was to do the next verse as well. Uh, the next two verses as well, but we'll leave that for next week within Allah Ta'ala when we start the fiqh. Because particularly verse, verse 187, it's dedicated to fiqh itself. And I thought 186 will be like a good heart softening um, introduction to next week's halaqa. So next week's halaqa, inshallah, we will be starting with the fiqh of fasting, what we need to know. And this will be based upon a hadith from the of fasting from Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. So the chapters of fasting from Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, this is what we will be covering together inshallah at the same time, starting from next week, bi'idhnillahi uh, ta'ala, Wednesday at this location at 7.30, bi'idhnillahi ta'ala, wallahu ta'ala alam, wa sallallahu wa sallam, wa baraka ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Um, so the general concept is the same that you know, Prophet said that in suhoor there is barakah, so that in having this pre-dawn meal there is barakah in it. Now, particularly with the, the long fast that are coming in the month of Ramadan, it's almost on the verge of being obligatory. That this is like, you know, with the long fast, if you're not drinking before Fajr, you're not having like foods that have potassium in them that will help you retain that water uh, so that you can stay hydrated, you're literally like punishing your body. And this is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't want. So fast properly, as difficult as it may be, wake up, you know, 15 minutes before Fajr, drink some water, have, have a banana, have some watermelon, and maybe have some yogurt and you're good to go. It doesn't have to be a big meal. In fact, you shouldn't have a big meal. But have something small because that's where the barakah is in. And that'll get you through the day, inshallah. So that general ruling is that it's not obligatory, but I was saying with looking at these long fasts, it's very important to, to wake up and have that suhoor. Yeah. You know how Tarawih, uh, in the North Pacific, it's finished at 1 o'clock, right? Yeah. Is it okay to do suhoor right after you come from Tarawih and then it's full city? The Fajr or no? Yeah, generally you could do that. I mean, you still get the same reward. Though, I mean, is generally is meant to be eaten before, like just before Fajr. They said like fifty ayat or so before the the adhan for Fajr is made. That is when the suhoor time is. Uh, but if one has the intention of having their suhoor at one a.m., there's nothing wrong with that. But it's still better, I believe, to wake up before Fajr and have that suhoor. Wallahu taala Go ahead. No, so uh, fix your reading of the Qur'an with the Salahs. So you have to pray Salah anyways, right? Yeah. So either read five pages before or five pages after. And if you just stick to five pages before or after every Salah, then by the end of the month, you would have finished the whole Qur'an, inshallah. Yeah. I thought you meant like in the Salah. I mean, if you do five pages in the Salah, you know, thumbs up. But uh, that may not be feasible for everyone. Wallahu alam. But let me comment on two of the things that you mentioned. 
In terms of you know, detoxing the body, that's something that's very, very important. That you'll notice that when you look at your level of health after the month of Ramadan, an individual is a lot healthier than they were inside of the month of Ramadan. So the point that you mentioned that we abuse our bodies for 11 months and then for that 12th month of, in, in the month of Ramadan, it, we do actually give our body a lot of ease. And you will notice that we sleep properly, we eat properly, and that, that's very, it's a very good point. In terms of you know, opening up the door for sadaqah, then the general month of Ramadan is a door of worship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's very true to say that you know, when you're not uh, eating and you know, you're encouraged to do more good deeds, the Prophet used to become more generous in the month of Ramadan. And you'll notice that everyone wants to do a fundraiser and for, you know, for this perspective. Let's take advantage of everyone's generosity. And we're going to hold you hostage in the masjid till you give. Uh, but yeah, it's a very true point. What if you do not know how to read the Quran in Arabic? Is it better to read the whole English Quran translation or attempt to read a few pages in Arabic? So the goal of reading the Quran in, in, in the month of Ramadan is to establish that relationship with the Quran. So what I would suggest is don't focus for an individual that is struggling with reading the Quran, don't make it an either or situation, but rather read a little bit in Arabic, read a little bit in English so that you can understand what you're actually reading. Because not only is there a reward in reading the Arabic, that's where the reward is. There's no reward in reading the Quran in English. What you do get out of the English language is getting an understanding. And that's what you might get rewarded for. However, but in terms of the actual reading of the Quran, that reward is only in Arabic. So I would say an individual that is struggling, combine between the both. And even if you don't finish the Quran, then do as much of it as you can. Read a little bit of Arabic, follow it up with some English translation, and that way you would have combined between uh, both forms of goodness, understanding the Qur'an and getting the reward of reading the Qur'an. Wallahu ta'ala Yeah, it, it could apply to that. It could. That's the context. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it could apply to that. It could apply to that, definitely. So that, I mean, this is, actually goes back to, you know, one of the, the principles of the Sharia, that anytime there's a, a difficulty, the Sharia always brings about ease. So when an individual can't fast, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always bring that ease. And over here, that's where uh, they give the fidya. Wallahu ta'ala. Because the last 10 days of Ramadan are the most important days of Ramadan. And a lot of the times when people aren't able to fast in the last 10 months, uh, last 10 days of Ramadan, is because they're not doing something right in the first, 10 day, first 20 days of Ramadan. So either they're not eating properly, they're not sleeping properly, they're not getting hydrated enough. That is when they are unable to fast in the last 10 days. So I would say try to figure out what you're doing wrong so that you can fix that, so that you're able to fast the complete month. You should never intentionally give up fasting in the month of Ramadan, especially for a prolonged period of time. You get sick for one day, on that day of sickness you can break your fast, but to say, you know what, I'm not going to fast for the last five days or last 10 days of Ramadan, this is something that shouldn't be done. Correct, yes. Yes. We'll conclude with that. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika shahadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik.